0: So Let me begin. A uh, very warm welcome to everyone on this public event titled Qatar Blockade: It is a solution at hand, hosted by the Middle East Institute and Autonomous Research Institute within the National University of Singapore. My name is Clemens Che and I'm a research fellow at the Institute where we seek not only to advance understanding of the Middle East, but also to deepen engagements between the Middle East and Asia. We do have an event coming up next Tuesday the 14th on Gulf-Asia relations, and you may also register for this event on the MEI events page. Today, we are very pleased to host Dr. Christian Coatz-Uriksen, who is the Baker Institute Fellow for the Middle East. He was previously the Senior Gulf Analyst at the Gulf Center for Strategic Studies, and also he held the co-director appointment of the Kuwait Program at the London School of Economics. Dr. Euriksen has published extensively on the Gulf and we will be discussing his latest book titled, Qatar and the Gulf Crisis. Also joining us today as discussant is my colleague, Dr. Abdullah Baboud. Uh, He's the visiting research professor here at MEI who has also published and spoken extensively on the Gulf. Before we begin, let me lay down the format of the session which will be entirely conversational. If you have any burning questions, we will invite you to type them down in the chat box and we will try to incorporate them in the discussion to the best of our ability. You may be asked to unmute if we need clarifications on your question. So a few words on Dr. Euriksen's book. He begins describing the blockade of Qatar as a manifestation of the free-for-all attitude to global affairs unleashed by the election of the U.S. President Donald Trump. Following this, he historicizes long-standing disputes in the GCC before finding that the 2011 Arab Spring as a watershed that set the blockading states on a collision course with Qatar. The spine of his book really explores the multifaceted Qatari policy responses to the blockade that happened on the 5th of June 2017, before ending off his book with remarks on the World Cup 2022, hosted by Qatar. So without further ado, let us welcome Dr. Christian Uriksen, and please allow me to put forward my first questions. What set you thinking about writing this book with a focus on the Qatari response, and How was the ease of access to Qatari officials? You mentioned a shakeup in the Qatar's Ministry of Foreign Affairs in February 2016, with Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdurrahman al-Thani as the Foreign Minister, and the reshuffle of appointments in the Ministry. Please, Christian.
1: Well, thank you very much, Clemens, and also to Abdullah as well, and to the Middle East Institute, and to the National University of Singapore for hosting this conversation and for the interest you've shown in not just the book, but of course in the wider manifestation of the, the rift in the Gulf we've seen over the last, not only the last three years, but going back, we saw an iteration in 2014 when Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, UAE withdrew their ambassadors from Qatar for nine months. And as you say, this goes back a lot longer. The, The rift that began on the 5th of June 2017 was quite coincidentally exactly 50 years to the day since the beginning of the Arab-Israeli war in 1967. And uh, just as that war really reshaped the politics of the Middle East for a generation and more, I think more than three years later, we're seeing to some extent that the rift in the Gulf has also redrawn the map of regional politics in the in the Gulf as well, in the Arabian Peninsula. So we're seeing similar uh, ruptures, similar shocks to the system. And also the GCC, which had been created in 1981 at a time of significant external threat to the Gulf monarchies, the Iran-Iraq war and the uh, revolution in Iran. The GCC had really endured as one of the more um, successful examples of a sub-regional organization in the Arab world. Um, Granted, it hadn't made progress on closer political union, and often its members uh, disagreed on large, sort of big-ticket issues of foreign security and defense policy, but there was still a feeling that on most issues, technocratic especially, the the Gulf states were better together than they were apart, and the, the sort of, as you say, the after effects of the Arab Spring, the different policy responses to 2011 have really driven a wedge uh, across this uh, this sort of regional configuration of Gulf monarchies. Um, In 2017, I was intrigued because not only did the blockade or the embargo, the boycott, again, the very terms disputed so much of the Terminology has become part of the polarization of narratives and views, but it began you know, within months of the Trump administration coming to power and it began with a, with a hack, the hacking of the Qatar news agency, the implantation of a, a news story that was intended to not only to rebound badly, to reflect badly on the area you of know, Qatar and on Qatar's foreign and regional policy, it was also picked up and disseminated almost instantaneously by Media outlets in, in regional and also states, and also in the US as well, and clearly trying to shape uh, an alternative narrative, which, of course, Kellyanne Conway, Donald Trump's advisor, had called alternative facts the very day after the inauguration, when there was a dispute over the size of the crowd in Washington, D.C. And so, in my view, this is the first manifestation of an international crisis in the alternative facts era, when suddenly facts and fiction were becoming. More blurred, harder to distinguish. And there was a feeling, I believe, that in this environment, there was perhaps a once in a generation chance for Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi, especially, to take action to settle long standing issues they'd had with Qatar, and perhaps feeling that the US administration would not necessarily stand in their way. Um, And I think this was manifest in the campaign of outreach in the opening months of the Trump administration. And then, of course, in conversations that may or may not have happened in Riyadh when Donald Trump made Saudi Arabia his first overseas point of call in May 2017. And and Trump himself, uh, on Twitter, the second day of the crisis, himself alluded to conversations he had had in Riyadh when he initially threw his support behind the blockading states. So he himself drew a link. In terms of uh, access, what I think has been quite uh, distinguishing is the fact that the Qatari uh, government has become much more aware of the importance of public diplomacy. And I think a lot of what may have been a lack of willingness to explain what they were doing and why they were doing it in 2011, 2012, when the Qatari's were very active in that Arab Spring kind of milestone. I think that led to a lot of confusion, a lot of potential misunderstanding and also a lot of second guessing because there wasn't that level of explanation as to what they were up to and why they were up to it. And what I think we have seen over the last three, four years has been much more of an awareness that governments do need to explain what they're doing. They need to explain to allies, to partners, but also to publics. And this to some extent was an area that Qataris were behind on in 2017, in part because the UAE had built up such a high-level operation in Western capitals over the previous 10 years. But also because Saudi Arabia had done the same in 2016 when the Saudis were trying to block the passage of JASTA, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, which would have allowed 9-11 victims to move forward, or families of 9-11 victims to move forward in lawsuits against the Saudi uh, government. So the Saudis and Emiratis were much more on the front foot. And the countries, to their credit, have very quickly Played catch-up, so to some extent, access was easier than it might have been, say in the 2014 uh, period of the dispute, when again a lot of kind of public diplomacy was less developed as it is now.
0: Sure. Dr. Babu, do you have a question or comment on on Dr. Euriksen's response?
2: Yes, uh, thank thank you, uh, Clement, and uh, thank you. Uh, uh, Christian, for uh, this uh, introduction. Um, and also, I, uh, I welcome all the participants uh, uh, as well to, uh, to this event. Um, the reason that we are talking about uh, this event is that this book that uh, just came up, by, uh, published by uh, Christian Orukson, is, is one of the best uh, published books so far on the, uh, on the topic. Obviously, there has been a lot of publication and articles and so on, but this is a very comprehensive book that was worth uh, talking about. And of course, as uh, my colleague, uh, Clement, said, uh, Christian is a, a real specialist in the region, so it's a pleasure to have him join us. Um, so that is on, on one hand. On the other hand, the, the crisis itself, uh, uh, people try, you know, uh, some people try to make it small, and others try to make it large. It depends where uh, where you sit and and uh, who you talk to. Um, from at least my perspective, I think this is a very important uh, uh, topic and a very important crisis as well, uh, and quite a significant crisis that's happening to the regional uh, order uh, as it were. And this is what the book uh, uh, basically uh, tackles. Um, it's a very interesting book. It's a very an excellent read. Very fluent. Uh, and, uh, and uh, I would recommend uh, reading it. But uh, I'm not here to sell you the book. But I, I really enjoyed the, uh, reading your book, uh, Christian. And um, from, from, uh, from uh, OK, this is the picture of, uh, of the book for those who are interested. Um, why, why do we think that it is an important uh, uh, book? And also what uh, is an important uh, uh, crisis that is happening in the Gulf? Is that you know all these Gulf states are actually very small and they've always been facing um, multiple of crises and the idea was the GCC itself, which is the regional organization was uh, another level of like, uh, security protection for the region um, not just hard security but also helping the GCC to stabilize helping their, to grow their economies uh, integrate their uh, Like their uh, their people, etc. And it acted as a forum for all the GCC states to debate their uh, issues and also uh, between themselves and sort it out within the Gulf House, as they call it, uh, Al Bayt al Khaliji, or, um, uh, uh, and it helps them to negotiate uh, free trade uh, agreements with other countries, including, for example, Free trade agreement with Singapore, also negotiating with China, um, negotiating with the EU, US. So this collectivity has really helped the Gulf states to become a a regional actor uh, and uh, and, and an actor that has voice. This crisis has actually um, uh, demolished all of that in 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 one way or the other. So all these. regional debates and, 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 and so on, whether within or without, uh, with other partners have all almost stopped. Not only that, the borders have been closed, trade has been restricted, um, uh, people connectivity and people's interest uh, have been connected. So the crisis itself is much larger than actually people, uh, people think. It affects the lives of humans nationals who live there, and also uh, people who work there uh, uh, in, in many, many ways, uh, much more than people think. And the longer this continues, it actually lingers on. It actually, uh, the harm is, 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 is larger. And from my perspective, at least, and I'm sure some of you would share this, I don't see the reason for it to begin with. There was no, uh, no reason for it to start. Um, and this is a question I want to uh, kind of pose to Christian. What do you think is the main reason uh, uh, that 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 uh, initiated this? Obviously, uh, we know that the official reasons, uh, but uh, I'm sure there is a reason that we haven't yet got our fingers on to uh, um, to understand why did why this crisis erupted uh, on, on the 5th of June, but also. Uh, I want to ask you another question related to that, uh, 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 Christian, if I may. And that are, you know, the the the, the uh, quartet had uh, demanded 13 uh, uh, items or 13 demands. Um, and I want to ask you the question: Is do you think these demands were actually articulated in such a way um, to make it impossible for this crisis to be uh, uh, re- resolved? Because there is no country in the world, small or large, will accept the, those demands. And they were made public. And the way that they were made, it just makes it impossible. So do you think there was an intention for this crisis to actually uh, linger on and continue? And uh, if I may, you know, just relate this to the Gulf states, uh, to the GCC and ask you, where do you think the GCC is going to go. Now, you know, we've, we've got this crisis going on since 2017. Uh, most activities of the GCC has been slowed down. All these projects, you know, common projects, etc., cetera, uh, have been put on hold. The GCC has become almost insignificant. Where is the GCC is, is going? And why isn't this that is a crisis that relates to the GCC itself uh, and also to uh, the uh, letter of the spirit of the, uh, of the GCC organization, and particularly to the GCC common market, which calls for free flow of people, capital, and money, uh, uh, sorry, people, capital, and goods. Um, this crisis goes against uh, that, that uh, much wanted agreement uh, that the GCC had uh, agreed on. And it wasn't even discussed within uh, the GCC uh, bodies or the GCC mechanisms. So basically, the blockading countries or the quartet almost by themselves decided that this is outside the GCC. when it actually relates to the GCC common market ag- agreement. And other countries were not consulted, for example, Kuwait and, uh, and Oman. That is on one hand. On the other hand, you know, why didn't they discuss this within the GCC, and especially after the Riyadh agreement, uh, where all the GCC leaders signed that declaration, why didn't, if there was an issue, why didn't it go there for it to be discussed and then, uh, and, and then see if it could be uh, resolved? So all these kind of questions, uh, lingering questions, uh, you know, we don't have any answers to. But I hope you can help us to eliminate some of these. Uh,
1: uh, well, thank you very much for all of those uh, points. And I agree that. What makes this crisis different is because it's not a crisis that's just between elites, between leaders. For example, the 2014 row between the Saudi Qatari, uh, between the Saudi Samaritans, Bahrainis, and Qatar was a, a disagreement between leaders, between elites, and it was kept at that level. But as you say, the, the restrictions on travel, the fact that families are now unable to visit each other in many ways, have been uh, subjected to harassment as well on multiple levels. This is now a crisis of peoples as well as of leaderships. And that has created bitterness, has created personal impacts that will linger a long time and I think will complicate any resolution, even if there is an agreement. You know, the, sort of the, the level of hostility and bitterness that is built up on, on all sides cannot simply, I think, just be turned off by um, any agreement. So I agree with the, the reason why this crisis is different. It's really impacted people and families and communities. And it's descended, unfortunately, into a level of quite a bitter hostility on media and social media platforms as well. So it's much more of a direct issue. And again, for the, for the GCC, as you say, at no point in this crisis, does the GCC seem to have been involved? The GCC has a settlement dispute mechanism that doesn't seem to have been utilized. The GCC wasn't the venue for the expression of grievance, the expression of countries coming to the GCC and saying, we have problems with whatever Qatar may be doing. That wasn't communicated through the GCC, it was very much direct and without warning on the 5th of June. And then, of course, the GCC was also absent from attempts to mediate uh, the uh, mediate in the crisis once it had happened. It was the emir of Kuwait, of course, the, the father figure of the Gulf, the oldest Gulf ruler, the, the man who invested more than anyone else, I think, in personally in, in creating and sustaining the GCC, a man with 60 years of foreign policy experience, he was the one who Engaged in a round of shuttle diplomacy in the first three, four days of the crisis to at least prevent it from escalating further. And when he went to the White House to meet Donald Trump in September 2017, he did say, Thanks God, what we did was prevent further, what what we did was prevent military action, which I think got a lot of people, uh, kind of opened a lot of people's eyebrows because why would he say something like that if, if there wasn't potential that it could have escalated further? This is an individual who doesn't just say things like Donald Trump does, for example. He's very careful in what he says and how he says it. So there's that aspect of the GCC as to why why did it happen? And again, this is, I think, contingent on the time of the first six months of the Trump administration when Donald Trump had come into office proclaiming both himself and the people around him the old order, the established rules of the game, no longer applied. If you remember the way the travel ban on Muslims from six uh, Muslim-majority countries was applied the very first week of the uh, uh, administration coming into office, uh, you had Stephen Miller, the uh, main immigration person, literally shouting at journalists that we're in charge now, this is our game. And I think that there was a feeling that the Trump administration itself gave out perhaps inadvertently that we do things as we want. The established checks and balances no longer apply. We saw that with some of the aspects of issues uncovered in the Mueller report we 've seen uh, details come out of some of the campaigns of outreach of some of the a lot of the activities of the first six months have now become. Kind of aspects of litigation in court systems or in investigations and inquiries. And I think perhaps the Saudis, and particularly the Emiratis, felt that this was a once-in-a-lifetime chance to go for it. And to actually feel that a US administration would not push back if they tried to exercise a pressure on a another US partner, of course. And I think they felt that they could get the incoming administration, which had very little previous experience of governing. There was very little international affairs experience, partly because the election of Donald Trump was so unexpected, but also I think just because of the people he was surrounded with. I think there was a feeling that this was more like a blank slate that interested parties, not just of course in the Gulf, but we've seen this with Russia, we saw this with Ukraine, we've seen other aspects of their international policy that this administration was willing to take action that most other administrations would not. Um, for example, in January 2018, Ben Rhodes, who was on the National Security Council for Obama's two terms in office, Ben Rhodes actually talked about the Qatar issue as one aspect of policy. He said that we at we, the Obama administration had been blocking for three years Um, But of course, then Trump administration no longer blocks it. You get the impression that in 2014, in the 2014 issue of the row between the states and the Gulf, the Saudis and Emiratis might have liked to have gone further, but they knew that the Obama administration would say no way. And I think that constraint was lifted, at least uh, in their view, in the first six months of 2017. But I think that explains the timing because as you say, nothing new was necessarily on the table. I mean, these were continuations of um, accusations that had been made in 2014. And actually until end of 2016, it appeared that Qatar had repaired its relationships with its neighbors. Um, Qatar <clears throat> sent troops to the Saudi border in September 2015 to help uh, take part in the coalition in Yemen. And I felt at the time that that was that signal to the end of the 2014 rift that Qatar was now a fully signed up member of the GCC-led, Saudi-led consensus in the GCC as well. In December 2016, uh, King Salman went to Doha. He was uh, received with full uh, state honors. He was presented with a sword of Jassim, the founder of Qatar, sort of highest honor that Qatari leadership can give. In March 2017, the Saudis Emiratis, sorry, the and Emiratis, had a first of a beginning of meetings about common security interests. Um, both the Prime Minister and the Crown Prince of Bahrain were in Doha in early 2017 also talking about potential cooperation to assist with Bahrain's ongoing financial fiscal pressure. So it had seemed as if a lot of the animosity from 2014 had dissipated by by 2017. So the question is, what changed between the end of 2016 and June 2017? Now, you could argue that what changed was the the, the issue of the Qatari hunters in Iraq who were released, had been held hostage for 14 months or longer, and were released in April 2017 um, with a, a payment paid to the Iraqi government or to different groups, depending on which account you choose to believe. And that certainly became a, a kind of a, a, a smoking gun that was then used by the quartet of states to claim that Qatar was kind of back to its, or kind of back to the old accusations that Qatar was sort of playing fast and loose with regional st- security and stability. You get the impression that was a kind of action that they utilized sort of a convenient smoking gun to make that point. And then the the 13 demands, um, it's quite interesting because the blockade was the 5th of June. Those demands were the 23rd of June. There was 18 days in between. And on the 21st of June, the State Department had a press conference in Washington, DC. And the State Department's spokeswoman, Heather Nauert, actually went on record and said, we don't understand why they've done what they've done. There's been no explanation of what do they want from Qatar. And she was quite critical from a US government point of view. And so within two days, we had the demands suddenly appear. So one gets the impression that those demands were drawn up in haste once it became clear that the US government would not take sides, even though Donald Trump initially had taken sides. We now know that James Mattis, Secretary of Defense, and Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, were critical, and also the CENTCOM as well, the military commanders were critical in actually going to Trump and saying, this isn't, say, kind of Saudi versus Iran, where from an American point of view, you have a good side and a bad side, but these are all partners, we can't take sides. So I think once that happened, and Trump was kind of rode back from actually taking sides, the, the State Department expressed frustration with these dem- with the, the lack of explanations to why it had happened. So I do think the demands were framed in such a way as well they were impossible for any state to accede to. They would have been imp- infringed upon sovereignty. And a lot of people drew the analogy of 1914, the uh, ultimatum given by Austria-Hungary to Serbia, which ultimately triggered the chain of events that led to the beginning of World War One. This was an ultimatum that no sovereign state could realistically expect to accede to. So I think they were designed to be rejected and probably to then legitimize the continuation of the action, even though the US government had by that point begun to make clear that they wanted it resolved and that they weren't going to take sides. So the, the demands became a sort of mechanism for kind of continuing to legitimate uh, no, the, the, the embargo kind of going on and not being not being resolved. And I think also the way the demands were framed, um, for example, Iran being the number one point, cut ties with Iran and cease kind of engaging with Iran in, in, on a government level, were also designed, I might mean, not designed, but they also had a an impact in Kuwait and in Oman. Uh, because Kuwait and Oman, like Qatar, had been working on practical engagement, creating working relationships with Iran. And we forget perhaps that at the beginning of the administration, when Trump came into office that same week, the Emir of Kuwait had sent a letter to Hassan Rouhani in Iran, trying to uh, find ways, to, uh, create a GCC Iran dialogue to dial down the tension in the Gulf. And Rouhani uh, followed up with a visit to Kuwait and then to Oman in February 2017. And then uh, the Emir of Kuwait himself went to Oman to meet with Sultan Qaboos to then see how they could go further. So using then Iran as well as an issue against Qatar, I think, was also, again, part of that tearing of the fabric of kind of creating tension more widely than just between Qatar and its neighboring states. Because there would then be a feeling, perhaps, in. City or in Muscat, of are we next? Is this part of an attempt by Abu Dhabi and Riyadh to kind of impose a, a kind of a geopolitical straitjacket on what other Gulf states can or cannot do, either in terms of engaging with neighbors like Iran or with Islamist actors, for example? That's also was heavily heavily present in the demands. So I think that's also hurt the GCC. It's hurt the notion that the Gulf states have the flexibility to follow different points of view, and that flexibility was always what allowed the GCC to continue, because at heart, this is a combination of six monarchies that went their own ways on certain issues. They cooperated on technocratic issues, but they were never going to cooperate necessarily on big ticket items, and so the attempt to kind of force that onto Qatar had, I think, ramifications in Kuwait and Oman in 2017 as well. Where is the GCC going? I think the GCC was very fortunate in the first two years after 2017 in the sense that the rotating head of the GCC was Kuwait for 2017-18 and then Oman in 2018, early 2019, which allowed for a safe space, to use a term, to develop for meetings of technocrats to continue. So a lot of the committee meetings continued, health meetings, uh, meetings of commerce and industry ministers, technocratic water, so that coordination continued. A lot of meetings took place in Kuwait or in Muscat, and so the, the, the summits took place. The twenty eighteen summit, I mean, 2017 summit was, of course, a bit of a disaster in a sense that it broke up after one session, but the very fact that it took place at all was, I think, testament to the wish of the Emir of Kuwait and respect for him in all states, that at least as long as he's still with us, we will make an attempt to try and keep the GCC going. I think now that Sultan has also passed away, I think we may see once the Emir of Kuwait passes away, we may then be in a kind of new territory. This kind of old, the last of the older generation of kind of consensus builders in the Gulf will have passed on the scene. And that's when we may then see this Kind of landscape of gulf politics it's kind of newer generation of much more kind of national driven policy kind of exclusionary not inclusionary comes to the surface so the cooperation has continued at technocratic levels obviously now the common market free movement has now been hit by coronavirus as well i mean this has now created problems for all the gulf states not just for Qatar. so i mean this is now an issue i think that all GCC states will have to try and grapple with. Now, I think it will be interesting to see whether the GCC can actually do and find a way of moving forward collectively, or whether we'll just have six different country-level responses instead. I think some people thought that external events might erode some of the bitterness of the crisis, and that might have been either the attack on Saudi last September, or Corona, the attack on Saudi was an uh, external attack on the GCC on one of the most important Gulf members, kind of reminding the Gulf that external threat has always brought them together. And then Corona was an external challenge, but a challenge that's common to all states that doesn't respect political or geopolitical boundaries. And What we did see after the attack on Saudi in September 2019. We did see the beginning of a dialogue between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Qatar did take part in the meeting of chiefs of staff in Riyadh. Qataris uh, signed up to the collective reaffirmation of collective security, an attack on one is an attack on all. And those gestures were appreciated. We saw the beginning of a dialogue, but ultimately it didn't go anywhere. So even then, I think what had happened was, for a Saudi Abu Dhabi point of view, Qatar was not necessarily an issue it was worth testing that bond between the two crown princes. I mean, they have issues on Yemen, for example, that are going to be more difficult for them to resolve. So I think on Qatar, they agreed probably to at least not go any further with the dialogue. The Qataris, I think, would, hoped, would have hoped to try and split the Saudis away from the UAE. And that ultimately didn't happen in late 2019. I mean, you know, that, that kind of connection proved strong enough to withstand An attempt by the Qataris to try and deal bilaterally with Saudi Arabia rather than with a quartet as a whole. But then even Corona has still not seen a resolution of this dispute. We've seen a continuation of a lot of tit-for-tat kind of point scoring over the past four months. And so that also indicates to me that we're we're stuck. If uh, if Mohammed bin Zayed in Abu Dhabi, if he can pick up the telephone and speak to Bashar al-Assad as he did in the end of March, and talk about kind of corona challenges, common challenges, but that they're still not willing to do so with the Qataris. I think that tells us just how far this dispute has become entrenched. And that even a common external security challenge or a common uh, threat that they face through corona is not enough. And I guess just finally on this point, I'd say also that for the Qataris, the Trump's initial decision to take sides was a huge shock because it called into question the security guarantee that they always thought the US would provide since 1990 with Kuwait with the invasion. I think the assumption had always been that if a Gulf leader or if a Gulf state was always was threatened, the US would come to their support. And that was questioned in Qatar in 2017. But the Saudis and Emiratis, I think they've had a similar moment of questioning. That came two years later in 2019, in May and June with the attacks on shipping, and then in September with the attacks on Aramco in Abqaiq and Hureis, when again you saw very little overt U.S. response. So I think ironically, the Saudis and Emiratis have now experienced what the Qataris felt in 2017, that we can no longer take for granted this external security guarantee that we once thought was the backbone of our regional security and stability. So that, I think, has been a sobering moment. But what we have seen over the last six months of this, or the first six months of this year, is that the Saudis and more so the Emiratis are willing to de-escalate with Iran, even as, again, the dispute with Qatar remains stuck. So again, I think that they've responded to that realization that they may be more on their own than they thought by taking practical action vis-a-vis Iran but on the Qatar issue, because all sides are perhaps willing to live with the dispute, it hasn't yet created a situation where it causes overwhelming pressure on any one side. We're in a position that nobody perhaps wants to be the first to make the move to offer a concession. So that's where I think we're we're stuck.
0: Thank you, Abdallah, and thank you, Kristen, for your responses on on the context of the crisis the future of the GCC and the US changing U.S. role in in the Gulf as a security guarantor. Uh, We have a list of questions here from the floor and I'm going to try to incorporate it into our discussion. Uh, At the same time, I'm going to pull up some of the excerpts, relevant excerpts from your book. So, um, So if we were to talk about immediate policy responses from the Qatari side, which you describe as tools of soft and then smart power uh, in your book in addition to strategic partnerships in the foreign foreign policy of of, of Qatar could you could you talk a bit about the chief feature of this smart power that's adopted by Qatar and how successful did Qatar fare in in the rights based or rule of law based approach that you listed in your book we have a question from the floor from Jonathan Misseroy about uh the ICJ, WTO and ICAO rulings on the blockade. Uh, do you believe that this will actively change the situation in the Gulf? Or do you believe that the quartet will continue to find techniques to skirt around international norms? Um, and then finally, I would like to ask um, on the theme of small states, and, and you wrote a bit about your, in your book about a debate between two Singaporean veteran diplomats. Uh, on, on small states uh, whether a small state should act as a middle power or should it uh, resist against bullying so what's your take on this and what are the lessons that singapore and other small states can learn from the qatar blockade? thank you
2: and while while you're thinking about the yes.
0: answer, uh, uh, uh,
2: christian may i also interject here yes, and, and, and ask you about uh, what really surprised a lot of people is the, uh, how Qatar uh, was uh, resilient uh, in the way that it handled the crisis. Uh, first of all, it built its own resiliency. Um, and I think this is also goes back toward uh, before the current crisis, you know, the 2013, 2014, or even before. But also, how did they manage the crisis? Um, and were they able to succeed, in, 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 in your view, um, uh, in terms of you know, uh, managing it internally and externally? Uh, with, with the, uh, just to add to what uh, Clemens has asked, I thought if you could also uh, look into that. Thank you.
1: Well, no, thank you. I'll start with the, your question, Abdullah, first, because it underpins what comes next. Resilience was critical. And again, it was something that was in, began to be put in place even before 2014, but it was accelerated after 2014. And there was a feeling, I think, that in Doha in 2014, that if this issue had happened in 2014, this sort of pressure on Qatar by regional neighbors, it could happen again. And so there was a feeling that we need to begin to at least map out scenarios and to take action to at least be prepared. And part of that was infrastructure. And in 2016, the countries opened a they began the phased opening of a huge new port, Hamad Port, which was I think 14 times larger than Doha Port, the one it, it didn't replace, but it added to. And that was begun even before 2014, but it came online in 2016 and it was available in 2017. So for example, Hamad port was large enough to accept ocean-going cargo ships direct to Doha, whereas in 2014, 85% of Qatari trade that came in from sea was stopped, first was shipped from either they had to stop off at Dubai, uh, Jebel Ali in Dubai, or ports in Oman, and it was then loaded onto smaller ships that went up into, into the Gulf itself. And so in 2014, had you had a situation, for example, where the blockade had happened and all of Qatar's land trade, Saudi was shut, together with 85% of imports coming by sea, that would have really created problems very quickly. And that pressure... Could have succeeded, but by 2017, you then saw the Qataris very quickly securing alternative trade routes and allow kind of putting in place measures to really minimise the disruption to the flow of goods and to essential items like food, for example. And Hamad Port was absolutely critical to that. There was also the fact that in 2017 you had a two two-week kind of warning period in the sense of the blockade. The hack happened on the 23rd of May, then had that two-week period of rising media attack on Qatar. So there's a sense that something was up. I don't think people quite knew what was up, but they could sense that something was happening. And so in that two-week period, and I go into this in the book, and I spoke to the Minister of um, Trade and Industry at the time, and he described how, for example, they started doing market scanning exercises so that at least they'd be aware of where imports came from, what supply chains were active, where those points of supply were, and what would we need to do to put in place alternative supply chains if something happened. So once, of course, the blockade did happen on the 5th of June, they were able to, within two days, put in place alternative supply routes and within, I think, four days, the shortages were overcome. And there was also a, a, obviously a kind of a, an emphasis on, um, on, on domestic, kind of increasing domestic production where they could as well. And I think that that goes to one of the issues to the failure of the blockade. First of all, you're blockading a state which does have very large reserves of capital, has very significant capacity to adapt. And, in those first months, the Qataris did spend it was thirty or forty billion dollars in, in adaptation and in mean, at least mitigating the disruption created by the by the measures taken on the fifth of June and allowing normal life, so to speak, to continue for most people. I think one of the aims perhaps of the action on the fifth of June would have been to try and divide society from the state to divide people, to set them against, to create panic, and that didn't happen. So in in that respect, it didn't succeed. Again, in another respect, one of the reasons the blockade didn't succeed was that very few international or even regional states bought into it. But the attempt to isolate Qatar really only had a few other states, uh, Mauritania, Chad, um, Senegal, Jordan, they kind of downgraded ties. Uh, the Yemeni um, Yemeni government, based in Saudi Arabia, and Khalifa Haftar in eastern Libya, which is uh, kind of heavily influenced by the UAE, but there was almost no signing on internationally to the attempt. So in that respect as well, uh, that was a policy response that didn't happen in terms of the, the blockade or the Quartet point of view. Again, the Qataris' smart power in the sense of deploying. Um, investment in making agreements in very well. I mean, the, the, for example, the uh, the MOU with the US on counterterrorism, on terrorism finance, kind of going further and very quickly taking proactive action that was appreciated in Western capitals, and also going on that sort of uh, arms uh, spree buying, fighter jets the US, the UK, and France. Again, um, dealing with a kind of new energy deals, um, obviously they'd they'd announced the expansion of the uh, Northfield gas production as well. These were tangible impacts that, again, reinforced the commercial and energy links between Qatar and states around the world, which meant that very few states were willing to accept the narrative that had been tried to be pushed in June in June, 2017, the, the response, another response as I go into in the book, which I think Jonathan raised was the rule of law approach. At least on kind of taking all the issues raised by the blockade and separating them into different files and then going with each file to an international body. Also was part of, I think, the successful attempt to reframe the narrative away from Qatar as a destabilizing actor, We don't know what they're doing. We don't know why they're doing it. We can't trust them. Reframing the narrative to one that the Qataris look like the responsible partner by saying, okay, there are issues. Let's take it to the bodies of international organizations that are supposed to deal with them. And in an environment in 2018 and 19 when international institutions, although very shaken by the rise of populism, by Donald Trump, by Bolsonaro in Brazil, by the Chinese rise, by, by Brexit. You know, by going to these institutions, the Qataris were trying to reframe the narrative again as to what we're on the side of law and order and regulation and the fact that you have rules. The guys on the other side are the ones who are trying to put in place an old-fashioned power play. And again, that was part of the attempt to succeed in winning the the battle of ideas and in kind of reinforcing the failure of the quartet to get countries and peoples around the world to buy into the attempt to isolate Qatar and to sort of stigmatize Qatar as an actor that shouldn't be trusted or engaged with. We've seen obviously over the last few weeks, the World Trade Organization, the WTO, issue a, a ruling on one aspect of this, which was the, uh, the privacy of international television broadcasting rights, um, held by BN Sports in Qatar. We now see the Saudis making moves to perhaps uh, address some of the issues. But again, that's not necessarily because Saudi is willing and ready to reconcile. It's because the Saudis want something else. They want to take over Newcastle United Football Club. And this has emerged as an obstacle to that takeover. We still await the, the ICJ rulings, the rulings of the International Civil Aviation Organization as well on airspace and overflights. So I think the Qataris took these decisions to really show that they were the ones taking the high ground in that respect. and knowing that these would inevitably take years to resolve, but would be part of the successful reframing of that, of that narrative. I would perhaps just um, just add that, I mean, it has succeeded in the respect that we, we now see, I mean, WTO, WTO at least certainly showed that if you have international organizations that give rulings in your favor, it, it, it sort of then just reinforces the narrative that many people now have that, why is this dispute still continuing? And so I think, I think definitely that was a response that, that was, um, was very carefully calibrated. And in terms, of, in terms of also taking the high ground, there was some discussion in June 2017 about why should the pipeline, the um, pipes gas from Qatar to the UAE? Why should that continue? And the people, I think, have also wondered why the UAE continues to import natural gas in Qatar, even as there's been so much bitterness. Now, part of it, of course, is that the portion of that gas goes on to Oman, although the Qataris, I think, had made contingency plans to supply Oman with gas in other ways, perhaps through LNG, were the pipeline to be disrupted. But there was also, I think, a feeling in Qatar that if they stopped the gas from flowing, if they just cut it, then it would be seen as a collective punishment that would hit ordinary people in the UAE at the height of summer with power for air conditioning, for example, at its height. And it would, again, undermine the attempt to show that the Qataris, in their view, were taking the higher ground. And so that was one of the reasons why the... Pipeline was unaffected, it remains unaffected more than three years later. It's again part of that attempt to try and reclaim the, the sort of narrative. And I think from a point of view of a quartet versus Qatar, that has been quite quite stark. Oh, and then small states, middle powers. I'm sorry, I forgot about that. But there was a debate in Singapore, it was quite interesting because. Interesting also because many people in the Gulf, in Qatar and the UAE, they always look to Singapore as a model. You know, the Singapore experiment, the Singapore model, is one that is studied very carefully. And here you had an example of the situation in reverse. People in Singapore are looking at what's happening to a small state in the Gulf. I think the lesson is that, and again, this goes back even longer. I mean, the lesson of 1990, for example, in Kuwait, Whereas if you need a small state surrounded by more conventionally powerful neighbors, perhaps potentially aggressive neighbors, is to create tangible working partnerships with countries around the world, to kind of create those additional layers of political, economic, and security links that mean that if and when something happens, then you will have partners around the world who will Recognized the value of coming to your assistance, and that we saw very clearly in Kuwait's case, and that I think was one of the triggers for the Qatari leadership in the 1990s to begin to move away from the Saudi shadow. In 1992, Hamad bin Jassim became foreign minister in Qatar, and by 1992, Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa had already more or less taken day-to-day control of a lot of the running of Qatari policy-making. And their view, I think, was very much that if we want to be fully secure, we need to have linkages that mean that if something happens to us, we will have partners. And in 1992, for example, you had Saudi-Qatari border clashes uh, on the border between the two countries, which again reinforced the importance in their view of... um, of supplementing your regional security alliances with other Gulf nations, with GCC states, supplementing those and complementing them with international partnerships. And it was a lesson of Kuwait, which was important there. So, both, 20, both in 1990 and in 2017, the lesson for small states is if you can become a critical part of an international framework of trade, of commerce, of political and economic linkages then when something happens, people are less likely to take it as a fait complete, and to perhaps shrug and say, well, there's nothing we can do. And so I think that's a lesson for Singapore, for Qatar, for Kuwait, for Oman. Uh, we've seen a lot of kind of UK Oman uh, military and security agreements over the past couple of years, uh, Kuwait as well. I mean, this is a lesson I think for small states more widely, not just for Qatar.
0: Thank you, Christian, for your responses. I'm going to put in a few more questions from the floor. Uh, and, and it seems that we have two groups of questions. One, one group on the UAE and the other group about mediation in this crisis. So we'll start with the, the, the bit on UAE. So the first one from Brian Shager is Al Jazeera has been seen by UAE, Saudi Arabia and Egypt as a tool of the Qatari government if there is going to be a a solution to the blockage, do you think Qatar will be expected to rein in Al Jazeera as per the expectations of KSA, UAE, and Egypt? That's the first. Um, The second question from Yusuf Arumi is that following the recent Twitter war between the UAE and Kuwait, what do you think is the main reason behind such a war and will Kuwait be the next target following Qatar? And we have two more questions from James Dorsey. First, there is belief in some quarters that the UAE has decided to wait out an opportunity, should an opportunity arise to act more forcefully against Qatar, what is your sense? And the second, can you talk a bit about the UAE's attitude towards Oman, which over the last decade seemed not dissimilar to those regarding Qatar? including the witness developments in Yemen, the 2018 spy case, and destabilization efforts in 2011. Uh, Abdullah, if you have any comments, questions, please feel free.
2: Yes, uh, thank you. Um, I think to add to that, uh, Clemens, is that uh, uh, I, I also, um, you know, I, I read uh, what you said about Qatar uh, kind of following a high moral ground in terms of dealing with this uh, crisis. And uh, one can see that and they've been doing well in, in that regard. And I think, you know, the, the global attention to what's going on uh, attests to how success they have been. Um, and the fact that, you know, there are many countries now trying to resolve the situation. Um, And I think I, you know, I have another question to add to what is uh, being asked, and that is, uh, obviously, um, Christine, if uh, this crisis has a cost to everybody, Uh, it has a cost, a huge cost to Qatar, but it also has a huge cost to uh, Saudi Arabia, to the United Arab Emirates, to Bahrain, and to uh, all the other member states of the GCC, and to their international partners. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm trying to kind of build up this argument, what is the utility of continuing with this crisis when everybody is is bleeding, especially given the economic situation now, you know, post-COVID-19 and the, oil, and the fall in the oil price. And the GCC has been also a very useful tool, uh, a regional organization that uh, that can be used as Another layer, if you like, of, uh, of policy that that is now almost become ineffective. Um, add to that, if if the intention was um, that you know to stop Qatar having good relationship with Iran, uh, the counterproductive, if you like, uh, counterintuitive uh, policy that has taken place now is that the, uh, the uh, quartet has pushed Qatar more towards Iran. Uh, and if they wanted less uh, uh, regional intervention, this has actually increased uh, uh, regional intervention. We've seen that with the Turks, uh, obviously, you know, moving in to help, uh, to help Qatar. Um, and I, I can go on about all the, uh, the costs that, uh, 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 that, that this crisis is causing. And one of them you mentioned uh, is about Yemen. The war in Yemen is, of course, uh, it's become costly to everybody. It's a nightmare to uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And I think you know logic would uh, dictate that they want to pull out. And now it'll be much easier if they had Qatar by their side. Uh, in, in this regard, you know, in terms of either supporting the war effort which Qatar was doing, uh, but not working against them, as they now, you know, there are claims that Qatar is working against them especially with its linkages with Islam and, and so on. And Qatar has been very active uh, in the past in terms of you know, trying to resolve internal conflicts within, uh, w- within Yemen. So they, you know, having Qatar on your side would have been much uh, useful, logically, uh, to uh, Saudi Arabia and Sinagar, than having it against you. Uh, and the uh, same thing perhaps can, can apply to Oman. You know, giving its relationship with the different Yemeni factions. So what, what logic are we, uh, you know, uh, 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 are we using here to understand you know, what is the utility of, uh, of, of, this, uh, of this crisis and where, where is it going to lead? And if I may also add, um, obviously, sooner or later, logic will dictate that this crisis has to end. Um, the question is uh, again: What each side could give in? What Qatar could give in? Um, obviously, we know what the other side, what Qatar wants from the other side, lifting the prices, etc. Or it could be a gradual move towards that, uh, as you mentioned in in, in your book. But um, what Qatar could actually give in to kind of uh, help sort out of, uh, this
1: crisis? Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Yes, Al Jazeera has been, and not just Al Jazeera, but of course the other aspects of country owned media were also mentioned in the list of 13 demands. They've been uh, clearly a huge um, provocative nature for the, for the Quartet of States, and they remain so. Uh, the, perhaps the inclusion of Al Jazeera and the demand to close also helped, I think it harmed the Quartet's case in 2017, because it then el- enabled the issue to become a freedom of speech issue as well. And we saw, for example, editorials in the New York Times in, in, in July 2017, condemning that, condemning this, you know, this kind of a further attempt to silence what they saw as freedom of speech and media in, 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 in the region. So again, it perhaps backfired to some extent, but yes, I mean, the fact that we have, I mean, Al Jazeera remains a live point of contention. I think, and this perhaps goes back to what Abdullah just said about what could Qatar do. I think whether to be in a resolution, you'd have to wrap it into a, a regional issue where it's not just Al Jazeera, with al Arabiya, its media in Saudi Arabia, media in the UAE, but Sky News Arabia, for example, that have all become weapons of kind of information over the past years going back beyond 2017, but I think especially since 2017. Any agreement that just focuses on Al Jazeera but doesn't necessarily focus on other media outlets that have been actually perhaps since 2017 just as or even perhaps more so kind of involved in these sort of media aspects of this of the of the of the, of the dispute, I think they'll all have to be wrapped together in some framework agreement on on how media operates on the relationship between media in states, or perhaps between media and political agendas. Because this isn't just a, a Qatar Al Jazeera issue. It's a uh, Chinese Arabia Abu Dhabi issue. It's an Al Arabiya issue with Saudi and Emirati sponsors as well. And so I think if there's a way of kind of bundling these issues into regional agreements, that might be a way of at least ending or at least dealing with one file. The problem, of course, is that We saw in 2014 with the Riyadh agreement, how an agreement that does just that, that commits all member states, not just Qatar, but all member states from kind of engaging in activities um, harmful to internal security of other states. We saw how an agreement like that can become so bitterly polarizing and politicized when things break down again. And we saw in 2017 how the 2013-14 agreements became part of that narrative, that tool, that, that kind of competing narrative. And so I think also any agreement that is made, if there is one, would also have to satisfy all sides that actually this agreement will be respected by all because the lesson of 2014-17 is that it wasn't. And that just created further erosion of trust on all sides. The Qataris will think, well, we signed an agreement in 2014, we feel we abided by it, but it didn't stop what happened in 2017. Saudis and the will think, well, we feel they signed the agreement and didn't stop what they were doing. So again, that, that uh, kind of shows the erosion of trust on all sides, which will make it harder And this crisis does have a cost. Why does it continue? I think it continues because, as I said, no one party feels they have to make the first move. Yes, it's cost the Qataris financially. It continues to do so. Qatar Airways, for example, reported losses in 2018 and 2019 after years of not reporting losses. Clearly now with COVID, we're in a different ballpark altogether. But there have been losses. There have been losses for the Saudis and for the Emiratis. Dubai has been hit particularly badly as well, partly because there were historical links between Qatar and Dubai. There's a lot of Qatari investment in real estate and other aspects of Dubai's economy. Dubai's reputation as a place where you can do business without politics or geopolitics getting in the way has been hit. So all sides are hurting. So perhaps at the level of Doha, Abu Dhabi, Riyadh, no one side feels that they've been hurt enough that they feel they should be the one to make that first move. And when you have policymaking concentrated in individual leaders, you know, it can become personal. And I think that then makes it harder to reach an institutional agreement just because so much of this now has become so personal, so polarizing, so bitter. The UAE, whether it's waiting for an opportunity, I think what we've seen since 2017 is that whenever they perceive an opportunity to try and push, they will try to do so. And as uh, as um, as Yusuf Al Rumi said as well, with Kuwait, it's not just on the Qatar issue. There's a I think a feeling that whenever something emerges, a leaked recording, perhaps a uh, Perhaps a recording that has been edited or kind of even fabricated or put together in a certain way. These will continue to be tried, I think. We also saw in in the beginning of May, we saw reports again of a a coup attempt in Doha, which were later shown to have no basis in reality. But it was almost a carbon copy of the um, 2017 fake news that began the crisis in 2017. We saw almost repeat verbatim in 2020, even at the same point during Ramadan. And so you kind of get the impression that they'll keep trying to see if perhaps we can begin just to kind of push, to push an agenda, to push to push back. And that creates and continues to create that bitterness and discord and lack of trust on all sides, now with Kuwait and now also I think with Oman. And certainly there are people in Kuwait and people in Oman who were thinking, are we next? You know, this noticing also that the pressure on Qatar began in July 2013 within weeks of Emir Tamim coming to power. And you know, the, the, the um, Qatari uh, foreign minister, who's now the Minister of State for Defense, Khalil Atia, gave an interview in 2017 to TRT World, in which he recalls being telephoned by the Kuwaiti foreign minister in July 2017, saying we have a problem. So from a point of view of Kuwait or Oman, this might look like an attempt to put pressure on a a young new leader, just as he's settling into power, just as he's kind of putting his own kind of imprints on on the country he's now in charge of, and perhaps a, a desire to push to see what happens. And so I think there was definitely a feeling that obviously with Oman drawing closer to a succession, which happened in January this year, and with the Emir of Kuwait just having turned 91, there was a concern that that might happen to them too. The, so I think issues like the Qatar, so that, so that the UAE Kuwait Twitter uh, issue over recent weeks has once again, I think, reawakened concerns that this might not be a one off, this might be continuing that Abu Dhabi and Riyadh especially continue to want all other partners in the Gulf to follow their approach, their line towards uh, issues that Kuwait, Oman, and Qatar historically have had some autonomy over. And that, that, I think, continues to erode trust that the GCC can move forward in that flexible form that allowed it to succeed for so long. Again, as Abdullah said, Qatar and Iran, I mean, yes, Qatar has had to be pushed closer to Iran in certain respects, unavoidable. I mean, the airspace issue pushed out, Qatar cannot be squeezed on both sides. And I think that's created friction in the US especially, where the Trump administration has tried to have its maximum pressure campaign on Iran since 2018, and would really want all of its Gulf partners on the same page. And of course, we now see the Trump administration wanting this dispute resolved, so they can focus on Iran in their view. And from Trump's point of view, he went to Riyadh in 2017 and called on the U.S.'s Sunni Arab partners to come together with the U.S. against Iran. And what happened within two days, they turned on each other. And I think there's definitely a feeling in the U.S. that this has now gone on for way too long. It's also why, for example, the Middle East Middle East, Secu- Middle East Strategic Alliance or Security Alliance, MESA, has been pushed so heavily by the Trump administration to try and add people to the room so it's not just the GCC, it's the GCC plus Jordan plus Egypt before they pulled out to at least maintain working relationships, coordinated multilateral relationships on security and defense issues, even though the GCC itself is perhaps less strong than it used to be, at least on the kind of common issues of concern as a desire to make sure to minimize the impact of this continuing crisis on on, on the bottom line from a US perspective. On on Yemen, absolutely, it's a quagmire. It's the Saudis want to end. I think they do want to withdraw. They want to withdraw, though, in a way that doesn't look like a defeat. And so I think the struggle now is to find a way of withdrawing in a way that is portrayed as at least mission accomplished in terms of addressing some of the issues of the border security for Saudi Arabia, perhaps uh, keeping the Houthis uh, kind of that control minimized to at least, I guess, Sana'a and the area around Sana'a, which is still a lot greater than it was in 2014, 2015. The Saudis are searching for a way out with dignity and with honor, and I think they also want to be part of the process that decides what happens next, and that's why we see all these parallel negotiations taking place, the UN negotiations, Saudi-Houthi negotiations, which have been facilitated by Oman, which uh, working now in parallel with Saudi uh, STC negotiations on, on southern Yemen, which then brings up the issues of Saudi and Emirati. Uh, interest in in Yemen as well, which could easily diverge at some point. And a split over Yemen, I thought, would be more likely than a split over uh, over the blockade. So yes, the crisis, I think, has to end at some point. I think what might be more likely is that it might fade into the background, become background noise, perhaps over time. We might see a kind of gradual fading away of some of the restrictions. I think one of the problems that Donald Trump had in 2018, when he saw himself as the mediator, he saw himself as the one who could bring them all together. He had a plan to bring Mohammed bin Salman, Sheikh Tamim, Mohammed bin Zayed to Washington for a series of separate meetings, and then for a sort of reconciliation summit in Camp David. I think that was never likely, partly because to have it so high profile would almost involve one or more of those leaders to acknowledge that they've made a concession, that maybe they made a mistake in going so far in the first place. So I think what we will see is perhaps restrictions being lifted quietly and gradually becoming background noise, not something that would necessarily involve the loss of face or kind of public admission or apology. And again, that could become a sticking point because I think from a cuddly point of view, they do want an acknowledgement that what happened was wrong and they want credible assurances that it won't happen again. And from a quartet point of view, they don't believe Qatar's in that place where they can trust them. So I think for that reason, we are stuck. But I think were it to be resolved, I think those, negotiations, our dialogue between Saudi and Qatar in late 2019, was the way to go to kind of keep it discreet and let's see if the coronavirus and the common challenges can perhaps lead to that. Although I note that four months into the, in the pandemic, we haven't yet any seen any sign of that happening anytime, anytime soon.
0: Thank you, Christian, once again for your response and thank you, Abdullah. Probably Abdallah later will have something to add about the Middle East Strategic Alliance that was put forward by the US and how Egypt left that alliance and and what problems it might pose. Um, We have questions on possible mediation in in the crisis. Uh, First one from Wang Ti Is there a greater role for GCC states that are not involved in the crisis, such as Kuwait and Oman, in mediating this crisis? And that was echoed by Faris. Abdul Rahman, whether these efforts are futile at this point. And Mongti also added Does successful mediation in the crisis require another powerful third party here? Um, we also have um, questions on the future of this crisis. Uh, first, one, first one from Nisha Who are the winners and losers of the blockade at this current juncture? Uh, and then another from Rukhsana Afzal: What has the quarter achieved so far, and and is this blockade going to continue indefinitely? Uh, if I may add, uh, from your book, you actually wrote that there is a spectrum of solutions, and and you 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 actually raise the possibility of whether it can go towards the full normalization of political relationships or you know, towards a more loose structure of cooperation. And then you ended off your book with a very poignant uh, statement saying that, you know, just as the crisis had its roots in Abu Dhabi, so it will end in, da- in Abu Dhabi, if indeed it ends at all. Um, does it suggest that, you know, somehow the resolution of the crisis still has to grow, go through very uh, senior leadership ranks in, 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 the, in, in the GCC? Thank you. And Abdullah, if you have something to add, please go ahead.
2: Yes, thank you, uh, Clemens. Uh, and thank you, Christian, for the uh, explanation. Uh, I, I, I wanted to, uh, if you like, add the point that uh, um, was raised by Christian, but also uh, by uh, Clemens, and that is about uh, the MESA, the Middle East uh, Security uh, uh, Alliances. Uh, uh, but before I do that, I um, wanted to just also ask you, uh, Christian, if I may, and that is, you know, one of the side effects of this crisis uh, is, is the damage that it's going to do to the GCC as a regional organization, uh, even if there was a reconciliation uh, between uh, Qatar and the quartet. Obviously, there's something that has to be done to the GCC as a regional organization. It cannot continue the way it is with the same old charter that was, as we know, written in very quickly, and, uh, and it, you know there are some institutions that are not, not even uh, uh, being put in action, like the dispute mechanism, uh, etc. Uh, and maybe some of the decision-making needs to be uh, revised. So the whole charter, perhaps, needs to be revised. The whole GCC uh, uh, structure and institutions need to be revised. But while doing that, uh, perhaps, and given that um, obviously there is an issue in the region beyond the GCC, you know, with Iran, Iraq, etc., cetera. Um, and there are a multitude of Proposals and ideas. Uh, Mesa is one of them, Uh, but Mesa is very uh, 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 exclusive, as it were, and it's basically against Iran in in this sense. Uh, But also, there is a Russian proposal that is uh, perhaps more uh, inclusive and has support from some of the regional countries. And recently, we've also heard the Iranian uh, proposal, the Hormuz uh, peace initiative. Um, obviously, it also it has its own uh, shortfalls, etc. What I'm trying to get at is: um, Will the GCC uh, survive as it is? Will it needs to change some of its um, uh, mechanisms and even its uh, charter uh, and, and improve uh, to ensure that uh, uh, conflicts like this do not uh, go, uh, you know, happen and linger on? And uh, is the GCC still relevant in in many ways, uh, given all the different proposals that are uh, taking place and no proposal from the GCC states uh, for anything uh, at the moment? Um, Can we think about maybe instead of the GCC or on top of the GCC, um, uh, another regional mechanism that uh, more uh, inclusive and more comprehensive that includes uh, includes all the actors in the in the region. I know that also has complications, especially now with the United States uh, 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 current administration. But if there was a change in the uh, uh, in the administration, would we see perhaps uh, uh, or can we think uh, outside the box? Uh, and, and bring in other actors in the region in some kind of a, a mechanism that incorporates uh, all these uh, different actors in the region. And avoid conflict, not just between the GCC states but between the GCC state and name, their neighbors. Because, you know, since the 1970s onwards, we've been living in the shadow of conflicts. It hasn't changed. And we have seen at least three major wars, plus lots of other conflict, very costly uh, conflicts that are uh, happening in the region. Can we think beyond that? Can we do? Can we think uh, outside uh, what what is there? Um, and I'll let you handle this, uh, Christian. In your Thanks, mind.
0: Abdullah. Uh, just a reminder that we have about ten minutes or so. So, Christian, time flew by, but just keep that in mind. Thank you. Thank you.
1: for uh, mediation.
0: Oh, no, you
1: I think there's continuing need for Kuwait to be engaged. I think Kuwait remains engaged. I think obviously with Corona, this is an issue because the Emir of Kuwait is 91, he cannot be physically, personally engaged in to the extent he, you know, he needs to be isolated, he needs to be kept safe. So I think, you know, in, a sense, in our sense, mediation right now is probably less, visible, less direct, but at least perhaps Kuwait working with the U.S. And there was a question about kind of a third party. And I think the U.S. has kind of tried to flit in and out at different points of time to be that powerful third party. And I think the nature of the Gulf states' relationships with the U.S. will mean that were there to be a change of administration, were there to be a Biden presidency, we probably would see more moves towards some sort of deal, at least in a sense that the blockading, the quartet of states would perhaps feel that there was no more potential that them attempt to isolate Qatar could succeed because the, the, so the individual, the administration that kind of raised that hope would have disappeared. So I think a lot might depend on, on the result in November, whether to be a second Trump presidency and a further weakening of international order and regional order, that might continue. But if were there to be a restoration of uh, at least you know, lip service to the ideas of international cooperation and of, uh, sort of international organizations, that, that might be something to look out for in terms of trying to push for some sort of resolution. In terms of uh, winners and losers, well, I think just by dint of the fact that there were no real additional People, the countries that bought into the attempt to isolate Qatar, then the quartet has lost. They've failed to isolate Qatar. Qatar is now remains open. They remain security and strategic and political and economic partners to countries around the world. So, in that respect, it failed. Even the countries like Jordan, Senegal, that initially downgraded ties have since then kind of re-upgraded them as well. So. Even the limited support it attracted in 2017 has now fallen away. And as I said, the Qataris have managed to at least reframe the narrative away from destabilization and insecurity to one of playing by the rules and respecting international institutions. So that, that respect, does a kind of winner and loser in that respect. What has the Quartet achieved? Well, ironically, they've pushed the Qataris to become more open on counterterrorism cooperation with the US, with other countries. And that might not have been one of the objectives in 2017. There was, I think, a tool they were trying to use against Qatar. But the MOU, the kind of cooperation, the practical cooperation, if you talk to US officials, they would acknowledge that Qatar does now a lot more than they were doing in 2017. But that's part of a Qatari Qatari response. It wasn't necessarily something that Quartet was trying trying to push, although it's perhaps an unintended side effects. Resolution through Abu Dhabi, I think, is probably how I mean, I think what we saw in late 2019, the Saudi Qatari dialogue. Qataris, I spoke to at the end of 2019, did observe that, in their view, the Saudi tone shifted after Mohammed bin Salman spent four days in Abu Dhabi in late November with Mohammed bin Zayed. He was there for the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix and for the meeting of the Saudi Emirati Coordination Council, and there was a feeling, I think, of optimism beforehand that Saudi and Qatar were making progress, and then ultimately that tone shifted and nothing happened in the end. So I think as long as Abu Dhabi does what kind of wants this crisis to continue because they don't want to reconcile because a lot of the animosity that began in Abu Dhabi kind of has kind of led to where we are. I think as long as the Crown Prince relationship between Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed remains strong, that will probably remain the case, at least over Qatar, when from their point of view, they have other issues like Yemen that could be potentially more problematic in, in Saudi Abu Dhabi relationships. Damage to the GCC, I absolutely agree with you, Abdullah, cannot continue in its current form. Obviously, the GCC now has a new Secretary General, He's from Kuwait. He's not a representative of one of the quartet of states, as the previous Secretary General was. He's now the Bahraini foreign minister. So I think the problem for the GCC was also that its headquarters was in one of the quartet of states, and its secretary, secretary General was a leading figure in another. So at least now, with the Kuwaiti in charge, there could be hope that they could try to be more present. Of course, the fact is that, The the new Secretary General took charge on the 1st of February, and almost within days, certainly within weeks, Corona changed everything. I mean, he has hardly been in office long enough to have anything to to make any difference, because Corona has dominated everything and will probably do so for the foreseeable future. At least the fact that you have now a Kuwaiti top of the GCC offers hope that some, some of the at least the GCC can perhaps become a more relevant mechanism for them thinking about what the future of the GCC is. Do they rewrite the charter? Do you have a GCC of more technocratic cooperation, less political cooperation, at least now with someone else in the top, those discussions we had. And then finally on Gulf security, yes, we have had multiple initiatives, the Russian initiative, which is more inclusive the um, hope, the Hormuz peace endeavour, which probably a non-starter for the Gulf states because it wants the exclusion of all uh, extra-regional states like the U.S. But at least they provide options. I think the Russian one, by adding participants to Gulf security, perhaps is one way we may see them go in a sense that the Saudis and Emiratis now, as well as the Qataris, feel they cannot rely solely on the U.S. The Qataris have now diversify this, especially with Turkey, we could see the Saudis and the Emiratis doing the same with, with agreements with Russia, with China and others. So by adding participants, not subtracting, but by adding participants to regional security, you not only internationalize Gulf security, you internationalize what since 1990 had really been a, an American-led network of security and strategic interests. So you internationalize that, but you also bring in other parties Russia and China and India, perhaps, that will not take sides on that kind of dividing issue, the sort of Saudi-Iran issue, the kind of Gulf versus Iran. 40 years now, the US has been the most important actor in Gulf security, and it's taken sides. Russia will not, China will not, India will not, they will balance. And so you could see a greater balance restored to regional security if it becomes internationalized, if you add participants, and if those participants make it very clear and are understood by all parties, that they will not be taking sides. There will not be another participant that will so consistently have taken sides as the US has done over the past 40 years. And I think we're seeing that unfold. To some extent, it will probably accelerate if Trump wins re-election, whether it can survive um, in If Biden tries to restore a more normal U.S. administration, I still think that there will be nagging doubts in the Gulf that can we ever trust the U.S. again after feeling abandoned by Obama and by Trump, you know, by feeling that we have these doubts over two successive and very different administrations is just now a pattern that the U.S. is less engaged. And so I think by internationalizing security in the Gulf, we could lead to greater balance. And the fact that the Saudis and the Emiratis responded by to the killing of Qasem Soleimani, not by hawkishly supporting the U.S., but by actually calling for de-escalation, which would have been really quite unthinkable in 2017 2018, that, I think, shows where we might be going, where you have doubts about the role of the U.S. and you have a desire to add participants, which goes with the territory that they will not take sides as much as... As a US, so we could ironically be seeing the beginnings of a more inclusive attempt to at least work with partners uh, and not against on a more wide, on a kind of wider regional security level.
0: Thank you, Christian. Um, We have about four minutes of leeway before we end off. So uh, I have one more question before I pass it over to Abdullah for final remarks and back to Christian. Uh, is there really an emerging crack within the UAE, as you suggested in your book? Because you talked about Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum penning a poem for for Qatar, asking it to return to the GCC four. Um, and that's my question. That's also echoed by Asif Shuja at MEI. Um, so, any final remarks, uh, Abdullah? Uh, you need to unmute.
2: Thank you. Um, Well, uh, my final remarks is I I think this has been a great session. Uh, It's always a pleasure to have uh, Christian with us. I think uh, the region, uh, as I was uh, saying earlier, has had more than enough of its share of conflicts uh, and and, and wars. And the last thing that one was hoping for is to see cracks within. Uh, the, uh, as Christian mentioned, in one of the most successful bodies in the Arab world, uh, as it were, uh, and that is the GCC. Uh, of course, it hurts everybody, uh, not only in Qatar, but also all the other uh, Gulf states. Um, we would certainly, uh, as someone who comes from the region, we would like to see this conflict resolved, because we don't see, you know, the utility and benefit of uh, the continuation, and the more it continues, the more it, it becomes harder for it to be resolved because, you know, Qatar, as we said, and other and, and other countries started to build their different uh, uh, ways of, of doing things and building alliances, etc. What we are also seeing is a two-speed GCC, perhaps, um, and that is, you know, uh, Saudi, Emirati, or Saudi, Kuwaiti, uh, or maybe even. Uh, a, var- a variable geometry of uh, of the GCC. Um, so all of these are very confusing uh, to the people in the, in the region. At a time when we're facing the pandemic, we're facing uh, uh, the post-pandemic uh, like uh, problems, uh, uh, the oil prices, the economic challenges that the region is facing. The last thing you want to see is is you know continuation of this conflict. And most importantly it how it affects people families have been separated by this as you know this is a, a very uh, yeah, of course you all know we're talking about you know uh, uh, essentially one social fabric you know where uh, families are extended across uh, the different GCC states and tribes etc um, you know the cost is tremendous it's huge and and, and it's totally unnecessary there are there is uh, there is no hope that you know any country uh, or uh, that respects sovereignty or uh, its independence will give in to the to the demands. So the demands will have to change. Uh, the The negotiations will will have to take place, uh, uh, maybe with the support of uh, external uh, powers. In this case, maybe you know some some more push from the United States under a new government, perhaps a new, a new administration. But also it'll be interesting to see what the EU could do, what uh, Asia, Asian countries could do to push for this because it, it is really and un- totally unnecessary and it's, it's not leading us anywhere except more costs and, and, and more harm, uh, not only to the region, but also to the partners of, uh, of the region. We are all affected by this one way or the other. So in that sense, uh, this is a great book. I really enjoyed reading it, Christian, and always a pleasure to see you uh, uh, online. Hopefully we'll meet uh, uh, physically soon, sometime in the future. And thank you, uh, Clemens, for organizing this and for inviting me to take part, but I'll leave it up to you now.
1: Clement. Thank you,
0: Christian. You have a couple of minutes to, to wrap up. Thank you.
1: Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for your kind words, Abdullah. I hope to see you again soon. And for Clemens for organizing and for everyone at MEI as well. Just to your point about Dubai, I mean, we have seen almost nothing from the Dubai leadership. I mean, they've been very quiet about the, the issues. Uh, the poem, of course, was one aspect of it. But I think this reinforces the fact that when we talk about the UAE, we talk about it in this respect in Abu Dhabi. You know, Mohammed bin Zayed and a kind of diametrically opposed view uh, than the Qataris have over certain regional issues, the role of Islam, of political Islam, whether it's a threat or something that you can work with. I mean, these are wider issues that won't go away, even if there's a resolution to this crisis. And of course, the fact that Sheikh Tamim just turned 40, Mohammed bin Salman is 34, even Mohammed bin Zayed, who's a generation older, is only 58. I mean, these are the figures that will continue to dominate Gulf politics for the next 20, 30 years, in Mohammed bin Zayed's case potentially 40 years longer in Mohammed bin Salman and Emir Sheikh Tamim's case. I mean, this is going to become the new normal, perhaps, especially once the Emir of Kuwait King Salman passed on the stage. Sultan Qabrish has already passed. That generation of consensus builders who built the GCC, who guided the Gulf states from independence through the first phase of their, of their independence, that has now passed. And now we're seeing the emergence of a very different leadership style. And so I think you know, we, we have to get used to it. This They will have to find ways of living together, find ways of cooperating, at least of working with each other. And so I think, as Abdullah said, what happens in the Gulf matters, because it's not going to be a short-term thing. It's something that has wider and also much longer-term implications. So with that, I, I thank you for the opportunity to talk about some of these issues. And uh, again, thank you very much for organizing this session.
0: Thank you, Dr. Christian Euriksen. Thank you, Dr. Abdullah Babud. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And we hope to see you at our next MEI public event. And once again, also thank you to the MEI events team.